The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. When I was in high school, I was part of a, a national service organization that afforded me the opportunity to meet and form friendships with other high school kids from all across my state. Got to know them a little bit, hang out with them, do different things. And one particular weekend, one of these friends who lived several hours away from me invited myself and several others of us to her house in her city as she hosted for us an extremely creative treasure hunt. Things began that Saturday morning with my friend dressed in a pirate costume, organizing all of us into various teams, and then she assigned each of us a borrowed bicycle. She'd got bikes for all of us. She explained some of the rules, gave us a few tips about her large city and where some basic things were, and then gave us each a portion of a map, part of the treasure map, and a few clues about where to go find the next piece, and then we were off. We were supposed to gather the pieces of the map that would then lead us to the treasure at the end. We took off, and my team, we had a blast. We spent most of the day lost, we didn't come anywhere near completing the map, but we had a good time. We all gathered back at her house at the end. I don't know who won. I'm not even sure that I knew what the treasure was. But that's okay, because this treasure hunt was not really about finding the treasure. It was about the friendship and the fellowship of it. And then the great big party at the end at her house. It didn't really matter if we found the treasure. Lots of scavenger hunts and, and treasure hunts are like that. It doesn't matter if you find a treasure. It doesn't even matter what the treasure is. Everybody gets to come together and share in the big party at the end. Lots of treasure hunts are like that. But not all of them. Sometimes seeking and finding the treasure is directly connected to entering in the joy of the party at the end. This morning we embark on an adventure. A treasure hunt as we open up and begin to look through and listen to the book of John. This book written by, and is written by and bears the name of John the Apostle, an eyewitness of Christ. And as we walk through this, we're going to find that all along the way, he is giving us clues. He's laying out for us clues to a great treasure. And he means for us to see these clues and for them to have an effect in us, to, to grab us, to cause us to look and to see it, to embrace this treasure and own it as our own. Perhaps more accurately, I should say, seek Him, grasp Him, own Him as our own. Because a treasure is not an it, it's a person. A treasure is a personal being. And for us, it's one of those treasures that's hidden right there in plain sight. It's right there for all of us to see. And all the clues are not hard to understand. They just prove hard for us. We are fallen in our humanity. They're hard for us to grasp them. Either to grasp them for the very first time or to continually grasp them to the depth and conviction that they deserve. My hope over this next year is that as we look at John together and see him 
argue for the wonder of this treasure. We're going to see Him do that. Call us to have faith in Him. My hope is that God the Father will use this book under the direction of, day by day, the direction of God the Holy Spirit to cause you to see and to grasp, to cling to, to love, to be stirred up in your affections for God the Son. To have faith in Him. That's my hope. That was John's hope when he wrote this book in about 85 A.D., 50 years or so after the crucifixion and resurrection. For a second here, turn to John chapter 20, verse 30. I want you to, to look at this. John 20, verse 30. John tells us why, under the inspiration of God, why he wrote this book. John 20, verse 30. He says, you know, a lot of stuff happened. We were walking around for three years. A lot of stuff happened. I didn't write it all down. I was selective. In fact, at the end of this book, he's going to say, if I'd written everything down, there wouldn't be enough room in all the world to hold all the books. He was selective. He wrote some things. Why? That by looking at this, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. That's His goal. He was selective. That you may believe that you may trust this treasure. It's his goal. We're hunting for a treasure that's hidden right here in plain sight. And if you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, you will become fabulously rich. Not financially. You become fabulously rich. You will find the abundant life. The blessed life. The life of peace, overflowing in real joy. That life is available to you. This all remains to be fleshed out, of course, but that's where we're headed here in this book. What John's about, I want to be clear about that. This morning we begin in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. It's the introduction of the book. And like many introductions, it surfaces a number of issues that are going to be carried throughout the whole rest of the book. Some of them we're going to deal with pretty briefly. But in this introduction, there are three foundational issues that we can't put off because John means for us to read the whole rest of the book in light of these three issues. So we're going to look at these three foundational issues and find that when we weave them together, together they make up this overarching main point, main point of this morning's sermon, one of the main points of the book, in fact. God's work culminates in Jesus. So we must wholeheartedly embrace Him. God's eternal work, the work that He has always been about, of magnifying His own name, of expanding and making clear His own glory, and doing that by gathering in a beloved people, that grand work culminates in it focuses on, it settles down and rests on Jesus. And so we must wholeheartedly embrace Him. We must grasp Him, pull Him close, and never let go. Fervently hold on tight to Him. To just ignore Him dooms us. 
half-hearted acknowledgement of Him dooms us. Formal, intellectual understanding of Him that doesn't reach down into the heart and result in an emotional embracing and loving of Him dooms us. We can't come to Him in any of those ways. We must come to Him wholeheartedly in faith, resting on Him, grasping Him and never letting go. We have to embrace Him as this passage, as these scriptures explain Him to be, not as we imagine Him to be, not as other people explain Him to be, as the Bible, His Word, explains Him to be. And this passage begins to introduce him to us. So let me read it. Read chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Before I do that, let me say a little bit about this idea of the Word. You're going to notice immediately he talks about the Word. And for us, maybe we're really familiar with the Bible and we realize that he's going to shortly connect the Word to Jesus. But John uses that phrase as a hook to get his audience of, of the day. Jewish and Greek alike, because the concept of the word existed in both of those cultures and the, the philosophy of the Greek world. It exists in the Old Testament scriptures. It has some connotations for them, and so he grabs them and he pulls them in and then he redefines it. It's a creative way of opening up this book. Talking about all that is interesting. I'm going to leave all of that aside, though, because what's most important for us is what John says about the word. That's what we're going to be focusing on. I'm going to use his language of the word, but in your mind you can think he's talking about God the Son. Let me read the passage, John 1, 1 to 18. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. 
first foundational issue raised in this introduction relates to identity. John begins by creatively introducing us to this treasure. And here he calls him the Word. Let me give you a sentence to summarize this first foundational issue. Here it is. The Word is fully God, the second person of the Trinity. The Word is fully God, not part God, not God-like, fully God, the second person of the Trinity. We're learning about the Word here, but in so doing, we also learn about the makeup of God. And what we see here is right at the core of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, of course, he doesn't use the word. You can look through there. The word Trinity is not in the passage. And at this point, we've only got two beings he's talking about, not yet three. But as we move through the book of John, we're going to see John is going to press upon us that God is triune. And he starts that discussion right here by getting all the basic elements out on the table for us. We'll talk about them in a second. I once read a book about writing. And in this book, there was a chapter about openings, particularly opening sentences. And a good one gets the reader's attention so that he can't put it down and tells him or her a little bit about what the book's about. And judging by those standards, this first sentence is a whopper. Look at what it says. In the beginning was the Word. And if you're at all familiar with the Bible... One passage should leap to mind immediately. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. It's the foundation right there at the very first moment before anything was created God already was he's assumed not explained not elaborated on he was he determined that creation would be so he spoke and then it was that's how it happened before that moment there was nothing no place we often think of like outer space as being empty. That's not true. Outer space is a place. There was no space. There was nothing at the beginning. The only thing that existed there was God. Just there, He was. And with Him was the Word. The Word also at the beginning. It's a deliberate parallel. That gets our attention. It's repeated in verse 2 again. It gets our attention, but it's not yet quite clear enough. So the sentence continues on. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. God is there at the beginning, and so right there with Him is the Word, at His side, God's eternal partner. He just was also. Side by side. And the important thing to note here is that they are distinct. God and the Word. The Word is with Him, but they're two different beings, distinct from one another. That's interesting. And then the third statement throws all of this a huge theological curveball. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This Word that always was, this Word that was with there with Him, God 
was that word. The word order is even rearranged in the Greek to add emphasis. It hits you. God was that word. The word is with God. God was that word. It's stunning. Two phrases are interesting, and this one, though, makes you sit up and look at it again and say, what? How can that be? It almost doesn't make any sense, but there's no explanation for it. It's just stated clearly and very elegantly. The Greek grammar is perfectly balanced, and it is crystal clear. He has written very carefully exactly what he wanted to write. The word is with God, using a word that at that time spoke of close relationship, yet individual identity. You might say a husband is with his wife, but they're not identical. They're, they're with each other. And then he turns it right on its head in the Greek and says, God was the word. He connects them. This phrase, it's beautiful. It's so exact. He's been very careful. If he changed any of the words or any of the word order, he'd say something different. He'd either reduce the deity of the word or he'd turn the word and God into the exact same thing. Make them identical, but he hasn't done either of those things. It's balanced right there. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and God was the word. The Greek is clear. It's a theology that's complicated. How do you have two different beings, two beings that are both fully God in the context of there only being one God, which is clearly the context of John, the whole book, the New Testament, and the entire Bible. It's really clear. There's one God. There are multiple beings. They are not the same. They are all God. You hear the core of the Trinity there? Right here in the very first sentence. Now yet, we don't have the word Trinity. We're only talking about two beings right now, not yet three. But those are the issues. One God. Multiple independent beings. God. Equally, fully. It's right here in the first sentence. And in case you miss it, it's repeated a little bit in verse 2 and down in verse 18. And notice 1 through 18 are the introduction. Right after that, he launches into the narration of the story of Jesus. 1 to 18 is the introduction. And these two verses, verse 1 and verse 18, are the bookends of the introduction. And he repeats part of this point down at the very end. No one has ever seen God, but the only God at the Father's side makes him known. He's saying the same thing again. No one's ever seen God, but the only God. Two beings, both God. Same point. I'm not going to talk too much about that. But he bookends this section with this declaration. The Word is God. The second person of the Trinity. But he's not content to just declare that. He also wants to show it a little bit by connecting the Word to the fundamental, foundational, God-like activity of creation. Only God makes something out of nothing. The creation is the activity of God. And notice how in verses 3 to 5 and in verse 10, he directly connects the creation to the Word. All things were made through him. That means absolutely everything. Notice he qualifies it. Without him was not anything made that was made. 
This is no dualistic world in which there are good things and bad things that come from two different sources and they're then fighting it out for control. Everything comes from one place. It comes through one focal point. It comes through the Word. Everything that was ever made was made through Him. Notice there is no qualifier that says, of course, except for the Word, He was made some other way. No. The emphasis is on everything that was ever made. The Word was not made. The Word was in the beginning with God. God He was. By declaration and by showing His connection to the work of creation, John is making this first foundational point crystal clear for us and he means for us to read the whole rest of the book in light of this. This one that I'm talking about, this treasure that I'm introducing you to, He is God, fully God, the second person of the Trinity, the triune God. That's who we're talking about here. The whole rest of the book rests on that. Let me pause for a second and let's think about this in a couple ways. There's two ways I want to talk about. One, a theological reflection and one a little more hard to define, more of an emotional reflection thought. First, the theological one. Think about this. He's introducing us here to this treasure. And as you look through the rest of the book, the Word, the Son, Jesus, you will see Him to be the true light that gives and contains life. The water that quenches thirst. The bread that feeds the soul. He is the truth that can set you free, the shepherd that gives you abundant life, the vine that will bear in you fruit that lasts. He will be your high priest to pray for you and your king to commission you and send you out. And he can be all of these things, glorious that he is. He can be that for you because he is God, lifted up on the cross, dying for not his own sin but the sin of others. He must be God. Because if He is not fully God, the cross is irrelevant. Has no effect for us. And we are all left in our sin. No water to quench our thirst. No bread to feed our soul. No fruit born in our lives. The reason is, we human beings have offended an eternal God. So our offense is an eternal offense. And we stand no chance of paying that penalty apart from spending an eternity in hell. An eternal offense against an eternal God demands an eternal punishment. The only way we can pay that is an eternity in hell. Unless an eternal being takes on flesh and pays it for us. If He is a creation, if He's a creature, He cannot pay our eternal penalty. God was the Word. God went to the cross. It's a theological point that we need to grasp and realize. John lays that here at the beginning because he's working towards the cross. But there's another way of kind of wrestling with this issue that's not quite so theological. It's more the word that has kind of come to my mind as I thought about this is it creates wonder in me. 
Because I think the application of this point is not primarily activity-oriented. There are some ways you can change your activity. You can begin to realize, okay, yes, Jesus is fully God, so that means that I can pray to Jesus. Maybe I should change a little bit about how I pray. I can talk to Jesus directly. Yes, that's true. And surely you should think about this, grasp what these verses mean, and be better prepared to explain them to your friends and neighbors and people who stopped by your door like the Jehovah Witnesses did at my house two weeks ago, and we talked about this very verse. You should be able to handle this and be able to give some sort of a reason for the hope that you have, because this is at the core of our faith. But it's not primarily activity-oriented. It more creates in me a sense of wonder. I'll try to explain a little bit. John leads off the book by saying, Jesus is God, if I cut right to the chase. And then what follows is that we see Jesus as a man, as a real-life man, humbly submitting himself to God the Father. Even using that term to, to speak of, of the Father as God. He prays to him. So if we miss this introduction, and if we happen to not be in a passage where he's doing something clearly godlike, like raising the dead or walking on water, if we happen to be in a passage that doesn't include something like that, we might miss the whole point and think that he's just a man. We can see him, because he's, so, he's depicted as so human. We can see him here later in this chapter, getting dunked in a river, and you can picture him coming up and wiping the water out of his eyes and kind of gasping for breath, because that's what we would be like when we're dunked in the water. You can move into the next chapter and you can just see him sitting at a table at a wedding with some friends, drinking wine, enjoying the party, laughing, clinking his fork on the glasses to make the groom and the bride kiss. You can just see him there. And if you only look there and you forget this, you forget that he made the dirt. And he made the seeds that went into the dirt, that grew into the tree and the vine, that made the wood and the grape, that made the table and the wine. He is marvelously complex. And this, as I think about it, it just makes me wonder. He's fully God. And he is fully man. That is complex. Do you ever think about God as not being triune? I mean, it's pretty easy not to, but we shouldn't because Trinity is all that God ever has been. The only God who is. And that is mind-boggling. He is far above us. And in some sense, it should cause you to sit down and say, wow, wow. First person of the Trinity, God the Father, sent the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, to the earth on a mission. That gets us to the second foundational point. The Word is God, the second person of the Trinity, the first point, happily existing in perfect fellowship within the Godhead, not needing anything ever you realize that for eternity past, because God is triune, He has always had perfect fellowship and delight. He's never been lonely. He's always been content, never lacking, never in deficiency. And yet, nonetheless, He determined to do something more with this creation of His that has now fallen. 
determined to spread His glory in still more profound ways that would then create in people great joy and love for Him. Both of those things. The magnifying of His glory leads to love and joy in people who see it, grasp it. He decided to do something, and so he acted. Here's the second foundational point. God sent the Word on a mission of revelation. God, that is God the Father in this case, sent the Word, who is God, to the earth on a mission. A mission of revelation, a mission of revealing, to reveal who God is to people and to reveal people to people. To show us who God is and what He is like and to show us who we are and what we are like. Both of those things. This mission was foretold in the Scriptures. It was predicted by John the Baptist and then it happened came into the world, and this hits like a thunderbolt in verse 14, in, in an almost crude way. He's talking about all these high philosophical concepts of the Word and light and life, and then he comes right down in verse 14 and says, and the Word became flesh. Not metaphorically, literally. The Word came down and took on skin and bones. This one who forever was became a body. God, who is spirit, immortal, invisible, all-knowing, ever-present, forever, before the creation, five foot ten, maybe, 135 pounds, brown hair, brown eyes, brown skin, calloused feet, dirty fingernails, scruffy beard, able to hunger and thirst and feel pain and bleed and die. God became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, the Word is tabernacled among us. A clear connection back to the previously most important coming of God to men. The tabernacle in the Old Testament. A great big tent that the people wandered through the desert that later when they settled in Jerusalem became the temple. It's a clear reference back to that. Back when they were wandering through the wilderness, when they were given the second copy of the Ten Commandments, you can read about this in Exodus 33 and 34. Back then, Moses had said to the Lord, God, show me your glory, please. I want to see you. And so God said, okay, I will show you my goodness. That's how he equates those two words. Show me your glory. Okay, I will show you my goodness. His glory is his goodness. And so Moses brings up the, the two new tablets of stone cut out. And then God hides him in a rock because God says, no man can see my face, so I'm going to show you my glory. You can't see my face or you're going to die. So he hides him in a rock and he passes by him and he proclaims to him, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who God pronounces himself to be to Moses when he shows him his glory, his goodness. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He reveals himself to Moses. The goodness, the glory of God, seen in a glimpse. It must have been amazing. The text says that Moses' face glowed for some time after that. John references us back to that because it was the previous time when God made his glory most known. 
And then John says, but I and the, my other friends, the disciples, we have seen even more of God and His glory. We've surpassed that revealed in the person of Christ. What was declared to Moses, we read about it in the scriptures, they all saw it lived out in flesh and bone, right next to them. The Word came in bodily form and pitched His tent, tabernacled right in their midst. I walked next to Him, says John. I laid down and slept right beside Him. I rested my head on His chest. He had love for a Samaritan woman, of all things. He healed a paralyzed man. And a man had been blind since he was born. It was amazing. What power and what mercy. I watched him turn water into wine and walk on water. And I watched him hang on a cross and die. I saw these things with my own eyes. And as I saw them, all that I could think about was the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Look at him. Merciful and gracious, abounding in, that is full of love and mercy, steadfast faithfulness. I saw his glory. I saw the linen clothes folded up, sitting empty on the bench of the temple and the tomb empty. That is not the glory of a simple man. It was the glory of God, and I saw it. The one and only Son, abounding in grace and truth. God made known to us. The Word made flesh. And neither John here nor any other human can offer some metaphysical explanation for how that came about. It never happened before. It's never happened since. There's no explanation for it, I think, because we wouldn't understand it. How does God become flesh? I don't know. But He did. His power and His goodness revealed to us. John the Baptist talked about him. He cries out. John the Apostle agrees with him and says, This is the one. This is the treasure. Follow him. Glory has been made known. Light shining in darkness. Shining on all people of the world. The fundamental essence of life righteousness and goodness peace and love the goodness of god shown to us when god came and walked the earth it's the good part of the revealing mission but by contrast that good part of the mission also reveals something much more negative by contrast it reveals who we are and that is not a positive thing. Light shines into the world. And as John uses this word, it is a negative one. Primarily, he does not use the word world to describe a geographic location. Primarily, his use of this word is to describe the realm of fallenness and rebellion. It's the realm of fallen humanity. It is darkness, such that later he'll say, when people get saved, they are saved out of the world. But obviously we're still here on the planet. The world is a negative place. The world was made by Christ, 
and is wholly in rebellion against him. It is darkness. And so he came as true light. There was light before. There was light in the scriptures. You can read the Psalms. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto thy path. My path. There's light before, but not light like this. The true light came in and shined in the darkness, revealed something to us. Think of it like this. This is admittedly a pretty negative mental image here. But it's consistent with how John uses the word world. So it's not very flattering of us, but it holds to what John means. Picture yourself as in a dark room. You're standing there in this room, and as you walk around in it, every now and then you step on something and you hear a little crunch. And if you stand there quietly, you can hear a little skittering across the countertop maybe. Maybe it, something bumps into the spoon that you left there on the countertop. It's dark, you can't see it, but you can hear that a little bit. Maybe something kind of runs over your toes quickly and you standing there and you know something is wrong in this room and I have a feeling about what it is but I'm not quite sure so you reach over to the wall and you flick the light on and for a second you see it in all of its horror cockroaches everywhere covering the walls and the floors and the, the countertops and then they're gone they all scurried away under the fridge, behind the cabinets, out the door, looking for more darkness, fleeing from the light. The second foundational point that John holds up to us here, presents to us at the beginning of the book and means for us to read the rest of the book in light of, is that God sent the word to earth on a mission. A mission of revealing God in his glory and humanity in its wicked, awful fallenness. It's not flattering, but it is true. He came to flick the lights on, so to speak. Click. And we all stand here suddenly, completely exposed. What happens next? What happens in that next second, right after the light goes on and you're caught? What happens? That leads to the final foundational point. And really, this final point could be included here in the second one as a connection because it's related, but I put it in a third point because I want to highlight it. It's related, but I'm treating it differently. Third point now. God sent the Word on a mission to reveal the wickedness of fallen people and the glorious goodness of God. And if that was all that He was about, we would see those two things revealed and we would be doomed. If that was all that he was about. But the third foundational point surfaced here and developed throughout the book is actually good news, not bad news. Here it is. The mission of revelation is also a mission of redemption. Use another word. A mission of of putting back together that which was separated. A mission of healing that which was broken. A mission of reuniting the estranged. A mission of fixing redemption. Those are other words to describe the basic idea. Right in the center of this section, 
We have the bookends at the beginning and the end talking about the identity of the word. Right in the center, verses 10 to 13, we have a sobering but hope-filled summary of history. The word made all of this. But all of us in our fallenness, we don't know him. He was coming. He came, even to people who should know him, the Jews. But they rejected him. They turned away from him, did not embrace him, did not grasp him and hold fast to him. That is a tragedy, especially when it becomes clear what's been missed out on. Verse 12, to all who did receive him, that is, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The true light arrived, shone forth, revealed, click, the light goes on. And those who held him off and ran away and sought more darkness have missed out on something marvelous. Because here in the light, life is available. Life is offered. Glory is offered. Grace is offered. Out of his fullness, out of Christ's abundantly full grace and truth, he makes available a fountain of blessed, sin-forgiving, life-changing, heart-renewing grace. Grace that is not the goodness of God to you after you've done everything you can. Grace that is the goodness of God to you instead of everything you do. It is glorious grace made available. Verse 16 and 17 read together. Grace upon grace. Really... Connecting to 17, it should read grace instead of grace or grace above and beyond grace because, verse 17, there was grace in the law of Moses. Remember the Psalms, your law leads to blessed life. There's grace there, but nothing like the grace in Jesus. A grace is available in him above and beyond the grace of God previously available. To those who bow their knee to Jesus, who repent and forsake their rebellion and sin. He gives great, abundant grace to those who believe. In other words, trust. The word belief is not just an intellectual understanding. It is a heart giving. It is an entrusting of yourself to those who believe, who trust. He makes them children of His. And your ethnicity is irrelevant. No matter what skin color you are, no matter if you're Jew or Gentile, it's irrelevant. Not according to bloodlines. Not according to human workings. This doesn't work like a physical birth. This is the birth of God. God births people into his family. John's going to press this theme again and again and again throughout this book. I've written these things that you may believe. And so in believing, you may have life. John's going to be about that, and I pray that you hear it. I hope you hear it. You see the treasure and you embrace him. I'm sure that there are some here today, there are some here every Sunday. Perhaps you're a regular here, perhaps this is your first time here, but you're here. And you're listening right now to an introduction to the greatest treasure known to humankind, the Word who is God. 
The Word who came to earth in a body. The Word who went to the cross to pay for sin. The Word who is a fountain of grace to those who trust Him. You're listening to this introduction to Him and the call to you is to repent in faith. To turn away from your habit of living in your own power towards your own ends and to turn to trusting Him. To find life in Him. That's the call to you. I pray that you heed it. Come. Find life. Don't flee into the darkness, but stay in the light where life is available. Maybe you want to keep reading and keep following along and keep seeing more of this one you've just been introduced to here. Good, that's fine. Keep listening. But do realize this, please, that continually not deciding and just observing is itself a decision. It's a decision, no. And all of us face a certain window of opportunity and we do not know when it will close. Right now you sit there thinking, pondering. None of us knows if we're going to live till tomorrow or this evening. I've talked to many people who have been thinking hard about these sort of things and a month later can't even remember them. There is a spiritual battle going on and there is someone who wants to take this and pull it out of your mind, even if you don't physically die, to remove it and make it no longer relevant to you. In a sense, there's a window that closes. Don't put off deciding forever. There's an offer right now. Come to Him. And when you do, as I know most of us here have this morning, the call is still one for persistent, repentant faith. That's still His call to each of us. You see, faith does not end at conversion. Genuine faith persists. It continues on day after day after day. Not so that you get saved again and again and again and again. If you have genuine faith, you are genuinely saved. But the genuinely saved life is a life that continually turns itself in faith back to Christ for grace today to deal with the issues and problems of today. That's what the heart of faith is. So His call to you is still... Believe. Come to Christ and find grace. A never-ending supply. From His fullness, you can and will continue to receive grace above and beyond any grace previously made available. New covenant grace, which surpasses old covenant grace. More grace today than you had yesterday. More grace tomorrow. It's new every morning. Fresh, what you need. Grace that will help you to choose to walk in the right path, to choose to love the right things, to choose to think the right thoughts. As Titus says, grace that teaches us to say no to sin. Grace that makes you new inside, causes you to rest amidst turmoil, to trust in the darkness. Grace is available to you. And the challenge for those of us who already have believed is to keep coming back to Him because we tend to forget or get distracted. Think, I can handle this one. I'll embark on my own here. Don't do that. 
come to him again for grace. I'm going to close by reading a couple lines from a prayer. It talks a little bit about this. This is from a book. I've read something from this before. It's called The Valley of Vision. It's a book of Puritan prayers. I don't read this book every day, but when I do, I love it. It stirs my heart to think after God. It's me to pray in more profound ways. A lot of these prayers were written hundreds of years ago, but they're still relevant. See if you can listen to this and hear John 1 in it. A little bit of old English, but bear with me. Coming into the middle of this prayer, he says, Every new duty calls for more grace than I now possess, but not more than is found in thee, the divine treasury in whom all fullness dwells. To thee I repair for, to thee I turn to and look to and rest in. To thee I repair for grace upon grace until every void made by sin be replenished and I am filled with all thy fullness. He says, every time I embark on something new, if I've done it a hundred times before, I'm doing it today, that's new. Or if I take up an entirely new task, I need more grace than I have right now, but not more grace than you have. You, the divine treasury of grace. And so I turn to you and I draw from you grace, power to change me and to fill up every void, every hole or gully, if you will, made by sin. Grace to fill up that hole. Grace to fill up this hole. Grace to make me what I'm not but need to be until I'm filled with all the fullness of God. That fullness never comes for us entirely until we reach glory. Until then, we keep coming to Him for more grace after grace after grace, and the good news is, it is available in Christ. All of the work of God culminates in Jesus. So we must embrace Him wholeheartedly and hold fast to Him day after day after day. Find the grace that we need. It's the message of John 1, 1 1-18. It's the message of John. Come to Christ, the Word who is God and was made flesh. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.